and I got other places we can go, but I'll open up to you guys first. Any thoughts or questions on Psalm 44? Donna Thompson. I guess my question is um, the thing about when things, when bad things happen, it's because of sin. Can you go into a little sure. more detail for me on that? Sure. Partly, I'd suggest, let me step back for a moment and say, the other thing to bear in mind, because there are 150 psalms, is not every psalm is for every situation. So last week, we looked at a psalm, Psalm 39, where David deals with the vexation, the frustration of things have happened in his life. Prospects, things he cared for have dissolved and dried up. And he's wrestling with how vain and pointless life can be. And then he further muses and realizes this is God's discipline for sin. This is the way God gets him to put his hope on him. So Psalm 39 makes it clear that some difficulty in life is God's discipline for sin. This is, this is his fatherly discipline. That is some of the times what is taking place. Certainly Psalm 51, Psalm 32 testify to the same thing. Psalm 32, when I kept silent, your hand was heavy upon me day and night. My bones ached and I groaned you know, until I confessed to you. So there is certainly difficulty and trouble and pain and suffering in life that does come as fatherly discipline. That's sometimes what's going on. Other times, God has his own purposes and so that's what this psalm is dealing with. But the point I was trying to make this morning is, whichever it is, God has purposes. So use the example of the man born blind. Jesus' disciples looked at him. A man, it's a birth defect. He's born blind. And in their theology, because they're, they bought into the logic of Job's friends, it's always because of something you did. Then who sinned? This man in utero, presumably, or his parents? And Jesus' answer is for the glory of God. So plug, plug that in, though. This man is born blind. The parents have a child born who won't be able to work productively, who's going to need extra care for, and especially in a culture where sons in particular are prized for their strength and their working on the farm and those types of things. And their they're sons in particular identified as, as aerials in a warrior's hand. And here's this blind child that will require all this help and attention. What happened? Why? And we, the reader, know 20, 30 years later, it's so that 30 years later, Jesus could show the grace and the power and God on him. And his parents didn't know that. And that's one of those times where it's for God's sake, for the Lord's sake, for his purpose's sake, this man's born blind. And we can look and say, that, I think that was worth it. I think in heaven, he won't begrudge the fact that he was allowed to be such an image and an example of God's grace and power. Like he, he's in scripture. He gets into the Bible, right? And um, yet he doesn't know that when he's born. His parents don't know that when he's born. So, so God has good purposes, but we don't always know what they are. Here's one instance where I'm sure the mother, the father, Lord, did we do something? Mean, and when, when calamity comes, I think it's good and healthy to take, to take stock. Lord, is there something in my life? Have I done something? I think it's a fair question to ask. And I think those are questions that God answers. So Psalm 139, Psalm 19, both have that example. Test me, try me, O Lord. Show me if there's any evil way in me. Now, you can get caught up with, I'm sure there's something. But my first response from Psalm 39 last week is, if you're trying to teach me something, I'd like to get on board and learn it so we can move on. <laughs> right? Which I think is kind of what 
David was saying last week in Psalm 39. Like, I, I think I understand what you're doing, Lord, so please now remove your hand from me, look away in anger so that I can smile. Um, other times, we don't know. There's no indication in Psalm 44 we know what this particular defeat militarily was for. We, they don't know. What we get from the rest of Scripture is God is up to good things in it. That, that's the point. So when I talk to people who are suffering, I don't claim to have any idea what God is doing. Um, and I think sometimes it can be dangerous to speculate. Um, in fact, pause. Go to, go to Philemon. There is some biblical warrant for speculation of what God is doing. But we also get both the warrant for it and some massive constraint in Philemon. We'll go to chapter 1 because, of course, there is only one chapter in Philemon. And um, I just got to find it now. It's right before Hebrews. Okay, Philemon, one fifteen. And in verse 115, we get apostolic speculation as to what God is up to, which both gives us some level of warrant. But here's a guy writing scripture who's not willing to do more than say perhaps, which also gives a governor and a guard. Verse 15, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever. So the Apostle Paul, looking at the circumstances of Philemon and Onesimus' fleeing from... So Onesimus is a slave, and he runs away, and in his running away, he meets up with some Christians, gets converted, becomes a brother, and Paul's sending him back to his master, but he's sending him back saying, wouldn't you free him? You don't have to. Paul is very clear. I'm not giving you an order. I just think that'd be lovely if he did that. And then he goes on to further speculate, perhaps this is why all this happened. So Paul's saying, perhaps the reason a slave ran away and all this worked out the way it is is so that you might receive him again as a brother. So on the one hand, Paul is not afraid and it's not wicked on our part to look at what's going on and say, maybe God's disciplining me for my sin. Maybe that's what's going on. On the other hand, we can get far too bold. I know what's going on. Paul, who writes scripture, is not comfortable to do more than say perhaps. And so I would use that as a very, very good caution that we not say more. So on the one hand, yeah, sure, perhaps this is what's going on. And, and sometimes in my life, I got theories as to what I think God was doing, what God's teaching me. It looks like the Lord was teaching us this at this season. He, perhaps he was doing this here. Um, and as you look at the events in life, we just got to be careful lest we try to draw too firm a conclusion. You know, sometimes you'll hear this, you know, I think Jerry Falwell was talking about some of the flooding in Louisiana was God's judgment. Maybe. Perhaps. And again, if Paul will only say perhaps, I'd encourage us to do that or less. Um, So to your fundamental question, some of the suffering, the sorrow, the difficulty in life can be and is at times God's fatherly discipline for sin. It is not always the case. It is not always the case. And sometimes it's righteous suffering. Um, And like I said, first Peter deals that extensively. I wouldn't be surprised if we don't turn there at some point this morning. Um, of righteous suffering, innocent suffering. So Paul can say to slaves, what credit is it if when you do wrong and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called. Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example that we might follow in his footsteps. 
right? There's innocent, righteous suffering. I've done what is right. I've done what is good, and my master beats me. And Peter says, that's an awful lot like what Jesus suffered and went through. And he goes on to talk about how Jesus entrusts himself to him who judges justly. And in Jesus' willingness to suffer mistreatment, God saves his people. And so it looks as though, perhaps what God is doing in human history, it sure looks as though God's growth of the gospel is frequently accompanied through the suffering of his people. So in the early church, uh, there was a saying, I think Justin Martyr coined it, that the blood of the saints was the seed of the church. So what you didn't see happen in the first century was all the Christians were healthy and prosperous and wealthy, and then everyone else was like, hey, I want some of that too. No, the, the Christians were chased, hunted. They hid out in catacombs. They were used as human candles in the Colosseum. They were fed to animals and beasts. And because of their faithfulness and their joy, God used that to show the surpassing value of the gospel of Christ. People were saying, who is this God? Who is this Savior that these people are so happy to die for? Who is, how wonderful must he be? How, how great must he be that even though they've lost everything, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Like, people who have that attitude are stunning the Roman community, and so more and more people want to know about the gospel. People want to know about Christ, and so God used the suffering of the early church as the catalyst for its growth. So again and again, when I see suffering of God's people, I see God doing good things. Now, there's no guarantee we'll know what they are. There's no guarantee this side of glory. I'll know that's what that particular thing was about, right? And I think it's dangerous to try to dogmatically guess like we can know one for one that sickness, that disease, that death, that loss of a job, that child who died, that like, I know what God's doing. I think that'd be dangerous to start doing but I am confident it is for good. I am absolutely confident it's for good. And Paul's point, when he brings up, back to the, back to the message, when sword, when tribulation, when distress, and we read those things and they sound like scary things, but they're not in our front view. The readers of Romans, that, that's the reality. Like, as you're reading Paul's letter to the Romans, a centurion might knock on your door and arrest you. I mean, like, so when he talks about sword, persecution, tribulation, distress, nakedness, famine, these are real concerns. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ, he's saying. Just, even if the centurion barges to the door and arrests you and your family, and you're crucified upside down, like church history tells us Peter, his wife, and his daughter were side by side. That, that's the context Romans 8's being written in and to. God is doing good. He's, he's got good purposes in and through that. Just as we saw last week that even though there's no inkling in the book of Job that Job has any knowledge of the conversation between God and Satan, the reader knows what's going on. Job doesn't. And when God answers Job, he doesn't explain himself. God's ultimate answer to Job, and this is a crucial distinction, is a rebuke because Job presses beyond, I don't understand, I don't like it, to you've got some explaining to do. And as long as we're just in the, I don't like it, and this is scary, and I don't get it, help, I think we're encouraged to be as bold as Psalm 44 is. Awake! Rescue me! Come, Lord, why are you delaying? Like, be bold. If you round the corner to, God, you got some explaining to do, Job's answer is, I'm God, I bring out the stars, do you? 
Okay, then, so maybe I know what I'm doing. I mean, that's basically God's response to Job. He, he points to his manifest wisdom and creation around me, points to his ruling of the universe, and says, are you still sure you want to challenge me? And Job backs down and says, I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke. But in that, Job doesn't get told what we already know in chapter 1 and 2, that God is using Job as an example of faithfulness to Satan, And we also know, because we have the book of Job, that God is using it as an example for millions upon millions upon millions of his people. I think, in glory, Job is satisfied with that answer, right? I think now Job knows, hey, I wrote a book of the Bible named after you, Job, and millions of my people were encouraged by your faithfulness, instructed by your edging over, and encouraged again by your repentance and confession at the end of the book. I think Job is okay with that. I think whatever complaint Job had is gone now, right? But there's no indication Job knew any of that in this life, and there's no promise we will either. So it, it's, it's take hope that our suffering has purpose and meaning. To me, it'd be far, far more painful to think it's absolutely meaningless. It, 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 there is no purpose in it. There's no rhyme. There's no reason to it. It is absolutely meaningless. I take much greater comfort in there is a meaning, there is a purpose, and his ways are wiser than mine, and I don't know what they are. That's what I think ultimately in Psalm 44 they're getting to. Yet for your sake, we're killed all day. You got a plan. You got a purpose. It's for your sake. We don't know what it is. It doesn't make sense to us. And it sounds something like, nevertheless, not my will, my will but yours be done, right? I mean, and so that's a fine place to be. Here's what I'd like. Here's what seems good to me. I'm scared of this. Please take it away. Nevertheless, not my, my will but yours be done. Like, our Lord said that. That's a fine place to be. That was a long-winded answer. Does that get it what you're asking, or, or did I just? Okay. Oh, over here. Alex, and then Naomi. Um. I'm going to try to talk right into the mic. Um, So thinking more about the speculation aspect, Hmm. like it can definitely be unhelpful to try to speculate and guess what God is up to. Yeah. But talking about it like Paul in terms of if you see something that God has done through it, ultimately that leads us to more praise of God for Hmm. his wisdom and like, oh, I never would have actually thought about that. Well, I even just speculated about the blood of the saints being the seed of the church. And the book of Job, yep. And the book of Job. That's my speculation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Now, some of it's obvious. God has encouraged his people through the book of Job. Yep. It's undeniable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, other places, yeah. So I think the certainty of what's going on needs to match with our certainty. I, I just want to be cautious because some modern-day preachers will try to interpret every event that takes place in the Middle East and every event that takes place everywhere, and they know what judgment this is. They know what God's doing, and I think history makes it easier. The further on we get, the further we get to see the full picture of what was happening, we can see more and more what God's hand at work. I think it's much more dangerous when it's like, this thing that happened yesterday, I think I know what God is doing, Mm -hmm. right? Yep. Uh, The other question I had, and you kind of hit on this already, but how far is too far in our crying out to God? Like, at what point does it become not good, I guess? Mm -hmm. So, in talking about Job, like, he was faithful, but it seems like at some point he crossed a line of, like, 
that wasn't okay to say. Well, no, we looked at that last week. He flat out, and we were told to lie you, you would indict God to justify yourself. So somewhere, mm-hmm. Job shifts the blame from himself to God. I am innocent, therefore God's wrong to do this to me. I mean, at some point, that's, that's where he shifts them. Or at the very least, God's got some explaining to do. Right. God is owing me something. He is mm-hmm. in my debt because of what's happened to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's too far. But I would say this. That's, that's a great question, Alex. I don't know how far is too far. I am regularly stunned by the language of Scripture and how bold and free the psalmist and other people in lamentation feel in crying out to God their anguish and how colorful and vibrant and, you know, um, like, let me, let me uh, give you an example. Go to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations, as best as we can tell, is written by Jeremiah. I, I like to picture him sort of sitting on a hill watching Jerusalem smoke while the captives are taken off to Babylon. The walls breached, the Davidic king captive and killed. Um, one of them's killed, one of them's taken captive because Jehoiachin, no, Zedekiah gets blinded and then taken to Babylon. And yeah. Um, and he's just, his entire ministry is trying to call Israel to turn, to, to avoid this. I mean, at a certain point, he says, okay, it's unavoidable. <laughs> but his entire ministry is warning Israel. He spent this entire life warning Israel that this would happen, and now he's watching it happen. And, and, you got to wrestle with the picture painted of God in chapter 3 as inerrant scripture um, because the first 20 verses are kind of rough. And I think the first 20 verses at best are a very incomplete picture of God. I think there's a a big turnaround in 21 that, that I think balances the picture out. But still we're left with this is the inerrant word of God. So what do we do with I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He blocks my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turns aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrows. Now let me pause. God is like, according to that passage... A bear hiding. And you go out and jumps upon you, tears you to pieces. God is like an archer who ties you up to a post and shoots arrows into your kidneys. Is that true? Which I would say, there is a perspective of looking at God where that is an incomplete picture, but there's some truth to that. And I think as we read through Lamentations 3, we'll get a much fuller, more balanced picture. But yeah, there's, there's a place that you can look at God from an angle. I don't think it's a healthy angle to be at. But that is, as far as it goes, very limitedly, I think you have to say that. Or this is lying, spirit-inspired lying. I think the whole point of chapter 3 is the correction he gets a little later on, the balance he gets. So let, let me keep going. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of this quiver. 
I've become the laughingstock of all the people, the object of their taunts all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has satiated, sated me with wormwood. He's made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished, and so is my hope in the Lord. And then these next three verses provide the hinge. Remember my affliction, my wandering, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers and is bowed down within me, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And I think what I, the, the, way I, the way I'm reading this is, there's some things I forgot to factor in to my previous assessment. I forgot to factor in the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every day. And, and so I think this is like the next layer coloring the picture. Like, you know, sometimes when you see, like, you look at the, uh, the weather, and they show you the clouds, and they show you the, and they have all these layers of things. I think insofar as it goes, the first picture is accurate. You need the rest of it to fill it in. Um, and so we get the rest of the picture. They're new every morning. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Now, I think that counteracts verse 8. He shut out my prayer. Well, there's a way of looking at it that way. He, I think, says it differently here. No, it was good that I sat quietly waiting for him. There's a sense in which when you're sitting waiting for God, it's, you can look at it like he's shutting me out and he's not listening. There's another sense in which he's saying, maybe you should wait on me. I think those are equally, not, maybe not, not equally, those are both, there's some truth in both of those pictures. I think there's far more truth in the second picture, right? So we keep going. Um, it is good for a man to bear the yoke of his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope, which is the next piece, which is, yeah, this is awful. Let him endure it. There may actually be good after this. This may not be the end of the story. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Let him be filled with insults. Then verse 31, 32. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, and again, the out is not, God didn't do this. Though he cause grief, he will have compassion aborting to the the abundance of his steadfast love. He does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Now that phrase, ESV puts afflict from the heart, means he's not vindictive and vicious. The grief he causes, he does not do from his, this says from his heart. It's not because I like hurting people. He does it almost unwillingly. He almost, he does it, this needs to be done in the same way that it grieved him to pour out his wrath on the sun. He wasn't saying, oh, I crushing him. I mean, that, that's not the picture we get. We get a picture of a father who, if he did not spare his son, how will he not also give us freely all things? Likewise, when he is causing his children on earth to suffer, he doesn't do it from the heart. He's not doing it gleefully. He's, that's the coloring he's putting in. So yeah, God caused this terrible thing like a bear to come and devour me. He's not doing it because he's mean, nasty, and awful. That's the, the counterbalance. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth to deny man justice in the presence of the Lord to subvert a man in his lawsuit. The Lord does not approve. Verse 37, 38, 39. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Now that's a pretty big statement on the sovereignty of God. Why should a living man complain? A man about the punishment of his sins. 
Which is to say, ultimately, and this is sort of pressing it theologically, this is getting back, Donna, to even bigger questions about, about uh, difficult things. If we really accept and believe that because of our sin, we deserve hell, then anything short of hell is by definition some form of kindness. Now that, that is hard math. I, I don't expect to come up to someone in the middle of their suffering, put my arm around and be like, cheer up, you deserve health. That, that's not going to comfort someone. It, and I would not advise you do that. But that is the logic employed here. If you stand back abstract, here, here's the point. We're tempted to say, for your sake, we're killed all day. I'm my own, and I don't want to be slaughtered. No, you were bought with a price. And God can do with his sheep what God wants to do with his sheep. That's just a humbling position to be in. And the way you get humbled is in, I was headed for hell, and I was purchased and bought. And now the one who owns me, who has redeemed me, who's called me son, who's told me to call him father, who who has given me his spirit and his word, in his, for his sake, for his purposes, this difficult thing's come to my life. I'm going to trust him with it. That's, that's the rationale here in Lamentations. So Lamentations 3, I think, gives a, a wonderful picture of an incomplete picture in the first half. Like You can look at it that way. And you ask, how far can you go? Apparently you can go so far as to say, God's like a roaring lion tearing me to pieces. I think you have to keep pressing through to the end of chapter 3. I don't think you can just stop there and go home. Like I think that would be wrong. But how far can you go? God's like an archer tying me up to a post shooting arrows in my kidneys. Now, don't stop there, but you can go that far, apparently. And I can give you other examples that are equally loud and vivid. So I think it's much more about what is there with, along with. What I see in the most um, extreme protestations of not understanding and abhorring what's going on, along with it, a commitment like we saw even today, we will continue to praise you, right? I mean, and as long as that's present, I think you're fine. I was talking to someone during the in-between services, same thing. As long as, along with your complaints, along with your, I don't get it and I hate it, you can praise and worship God and say, but I will trust you, I think you're probably gonna be okay. Only when my complaint is so great that until my complaint is answered, I cannot trust or praise God, are you starting to make Job's mistake towards the middle and end of Job, I think? I, I think the real test for me, can you, you've made your complaint, you've poured out your heart, can you worship God now? Or, no, not till, not till I understand what he's doing, no. Okay, I think you're in, in dangerous territory then. And at the same time, are you charging him with wrongdoing? Right, are you charging him with wrongdoing? Mm-hmm. Right, right. Five minutes. Naomi. Naomi, I think. Oh, Naomi, then Greg. Okay. Um, I guess my question was, if God, you're probably going to hate me for this. Um, If God is all good and he cannot sin, how does he cause evil? That is a great question. Because he can cause it through humans, and then the humans who commit the evil are obviously responsible for that evil, but how is God also not, in a way, responsible? No, no, sure, sure. Um, I'm going to give you... The short answer, <laughs> my mic pack just fell off. The short answer, um, well, there's two questions. I'll answer the easier one. The harder question is where did the evil come from? Um, I'm not going to deal with that right now in five minutes. Once you've got evil agents, once you've got a world full of evil agents, 
I think it's a lot easier to see um, God. We use Pharaoh. Pharaoh's a good example, right? Um, for this reason I caused, I raised you up, and it alternates back and forth in the account in Exodus. Pharaoh hardened his heart, God hardened his heart. And I think we're describing the same thing. So God, from his vantage point, because um, evil comes down to motivation, right? We don't speak of evil without motive. We don't speak of an evil rock or even an evil uh, disease. We don't, we don't speak of it that way because uh, what the cancer does, what the influenza does, what the pneumonia does, it doesn't do with intent, right? Motive makes things evil. I mean, because we can't speak about natural evil, but what we really mean is natural calamity. When we're talking about evil, we're talking about motive. God's intentions are always good. God can intend good things through what his agents will intend evil for. That's Joseph's whole explanation of them selling him to slavery. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. God meant his brothers to sell him into slavery for good. I mean, right there he says it, and he finds them willing to do that. Now, the sovereignty of God over, over the sin of men is, here's, here's what the Proverbs say. I think it's Proverbs 15, 30, or 30, 15. It's one of the two. The king's heart is a stream of water. The Lord directs it wherever he wills. And that's a good picture. Water's already flowing. If it's wicked water, it's flowing in a wicked direction. But God can channel it. It's going to flow in this wicked direction today, not this, that, that, this, that. It, it's still flowing where it's flowing. Um, so if God directs the hearts of Joseph's brothers so that their wicked intentions and desires today will be to sell Joseph into slavery, and they're happy to do it because their heart's already flowing that way. Just like Pharaoh's already happy to harden his heart and, and not let the Israelites go, then they're achieving God's purposes for his good intent. I'm setting up a scenario where millions of people will be saved, saved from starvation and I will birth my nation Israel. I mean, that's all good stuff. I'll protect the seed of the woman. I'll bring the Messiah through this. It's all great stuff. Joseph's brothers have none of that in their intentionality, right? They, they mean evil by it. And they're going to be judged for evil because God didn't add evil to their hearts. He took their heart and directed it, already evil, for his purposes. Something like that would be my explanation. Um, because... God can't murder. God can kill, right? Mur we view murder as killing without the authority. And there are rare scenarios, war, um, executioners of the state who have the authority to take life. Um, the state's given the sword. We don't call that murder. Self-defense, we don't call murder. You are authorized to take human life if your life is being threatened, or at least most countries would say that. God can never take life without the authority to do it, which is Job's point. The Lord gave, the Lord took away. When God took the life of our child last week, he didn't take anything from me. He didn't first give to me, which does not mean we don't grieve. It does not mean we don't cry out in anguish. It does mean he's done us no wrong. And what I'm trying to emphasize, and I'll... I'll let Greg close this out. But what I'm trying to emphasize is don't let the one truth negate the other. I think some people think if we say God did it, then we have to smile about it as if I'm saying, yay, my wife had a miscarriage. No, tears were shed. Groaning prayers were offered up. God is good and has done me no wrong. And it wasn't an accident. It's not meaningless. I have no idea what the meaning of this is, but it'll, it is for good. I'm convinced of that. Um, anyway, you, you asked a huge question on theodicy. That is my four-minute answer. 
I got to let Greg close this out. Sorry, Amy. Yeah. Oh, no, I understand. Okay. I just, at some point, will you deal with like the problem of where sin came from? Because sure. that I, is a... Yes, and I'll point you right now to a book. I'll grab you a small little book okay. um, called Spectacular Sins by John Piper. It's fantastic. Greg, sweet, bring us home. Well, I was uh, sitting oh. here thinking, uh, th I don't know whether this is an extension of the second reason or purpose of, of uh, calamity in our life, one being discipline, second one being God's purposes, you know, for God's glory and his purposes. Either an extension of the second one or a third one mm. is that when we experience bad things, we are uniquely in a position to encourage someone else who subsequently mm. does the same thing. Mm. Uh, and, and so that, that very well could be mm. part of God's purposes. Yeah. But, but I, I know that in my life I've been encouraged by people who have gone through something similar to what I've, I'm going through. Yeah. Uh, and it's encouragement. You know, they know what I'm feeling, so they, I listen to them better, mm. I guess. Or, yeah. or I'm more apt to be encouraged by mm. them than someone who just you know says well i've never experienced that but surely things will be better whatever and yeah. and so i think that's a unique benefit that we get that we can do for somebody else yes. and i would encourage everybody who has gone through something uh to be ready to look for someone else that's going through it and go up to them and encourage them we will close. I'm just going to read and we'll be done. Second Corinthians 1. I'm just going to reaffirm what Greg said. I'd, I'd, probably if I had to diagram it, I'd put God's purposes as the umbrella category. One of the purposes is discipline. One of the purposes is preparation for future ministry. One of the purposes, an example to someone else. I mean, the, I mean we could keep stacking them up. Um, so I guess what I was trying to say this morning is some of the purposes are discipline for sin and some of them are other things. And there's many other things you might be doing. What you're talking about is right here, First, Second Corinthians 1, 3 to 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God comforts us so we can turn around and comfort others who are in suffering. And that's exactly right. We can go through a dark path simply in part to equip us to comfort someone else who's going through something difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Amen. We are at time. We have a new attendee fellowship, so I must end. Thank you all. God bless.